Thanks, Keith. Welcome, everybody, to the evening service. All right. Keith is, is just that riveting for you. You all turn off. Good evening, everybody. That'll do. Can you open up to First John, uh, John chapter 2 as we uh, continue our series through this uh, letter that was written in the first century by the Apostle John when he was an old, old man writing to many of the churches in Ephesus. It's, um, it's John's aim as he writes this, but it, it's really easy to tell. He, he puts into the letter that he wrote why he wrote it, and, and the reasons that he gives is, I'm writing to you so that you Christians who are who are questioning salvation, who are struggling on the road of salvation, to you who are unsure where you're standing with God, or especially in their context, those who have been involved in this huge, uh, uh, tortuous church split, and all these false teachers had taken all their friends away, they were wondering which side were they on. Were they on the side of truth that they had fought for? Or, or did they start up a fight for no reason? Were, were they, in fact, the ones who were condemned to hell because of their faulty doctrine? And, and to them, John writes so that they can be sure that they know him who is from the beginning. So, so I, I just want to say that there would probably be at least three, but I'll, I'll paint with broad strokes and just say three groups of us here tonight. There, there will be some who, who are de- very much on the, on, the, uh, on the end of the spectrum that would say, I just don't know Jesus. I'm confident that I don't know Jesus. I'm glad I don't know Jesus as Savior. I live my own life. I live my own way. I prefer not to live his way. The Bible is old. Its rules are, are antiquated. I don't need it. Thank you. I don't know Jesus. Uh, then there will be some who are somewhere uh, on the edge that you've either just recently heard the gospel or, or maybe come to a fresh new understanding of the gospel as it is that we've been singing that Jesus has finished the work for us, that he bled for us, purchased our atonement, earned our forgiveness entirely and all that we do to receive that is not work, is not go to church, is not give, is not practice some kind of spiritual gifting. It's just believe by faith. And, and you've understood that, but you are unsure whether or not the understanding that you have, the, the belief that you have is, is enough to be the kind that would make you saved. I mean, you're just not entirely sure. And there will be others who are certain Christians, confident Christians, Yet those Christians who have allowed in their life a, a hatred of the church family, a, a love of the world, a, a behavior that is more characterized by sinfulness than it is by conformity to the Word of God. To those three people, of course, we could add a fourth of those Christians who are, are striving on and seeing victory in their life and learning the Word and growing in the gospel. You also are going to be blessed. But as we go on this series, I know that those who are unsaved are being challenged by the the hell that awaits, the judgment of God that awaits you, and of course being invited to partake in that beautiful, glorious salvation that alone is in Jesus Christ by grace and through faith. And others of you who are who are maybe in God's eyes, if he was to just tell us tonight, you're saved, but you don't know that, and I don't know that, the word of God is given to us to bring that to clarity for you. So as you sit under the word of God, God will reassure your heart, he'll bring you into confidence and assurance. And then the rest of us, the Christians, and maybe you're one who is, who is living in patterns of sin. The Word of God is going to call you out like the, like the shepherd's crook. Jesus is our shepherd. The Word of God is his stick. And when the sheep get themselves lodged in the same little cavity on the, in the caves, again, the shepherd comes, puts the crook around the neck, and yanks that thing out and heals it and loves it. And that is what Jesus does with his Word. If you're in a pattern of sin, a, 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 a behavior of sinfulness, Jesus is here with his word to bring you back to the path, and he does it through the scriptures. I trust by now you're in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from verse 7 through to verse 17, as John writes about love for Christians, love for God, and love for the sinful world. It reads like this, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light, but hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. May God bless to us the reading and exposition of his inerrant, holy, perfect, inspired word. Amen. Amen. I love that you are a Bible-hungry people. That's us here at Hope. If you're visiting or if you're looking for a new church, we just preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, speak the Bible, encourage the Bible. We try and live the Bible. It is our sustenance and our authority in all things. Amen, Hope? And so we open it up line by line, these 11 verses. We're going to see here that John gives to his disciples, his churches that that he's writing to throughout uh, Ephesus in the ancient world. He writes to them, commanding them to love one another and to love the the brotherhood. The the, the word that's in our uh, Bible tonight can be brothers and sisters, or it could be brethren, or just brothers, whatever it is. It's, It's referring to the family that Jesus has created by cleansing different people from all different families and bringing them into the family of God, where God is our Father. The Spirit is our union, and Jesus is our older brother who has ransomed us by His blood. So this doesn't excuse you. Don't, don't tell your mum and dad if you go home and you still live with your parents. Don't tell them that I've excused you, therefore, from loving your brother because he's not a Christian. And so you get to hate him. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the most direct application is that brother refers to Christian brothers and sisters. He's going to give us a command to love, and then he's going to give us the reason we are able to love. And then he's going to command us to hate. He's going to end by commanding us to hate what God So, first of all, look over in verse 7. I've said before that John is not very linear in his writing, so he sort of circles back to things. Therefore, we're going to sort of break up this first section a little bit in verse 7 and then over in verse 9 to, uh, 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 sorry, 10 to 11. John makes this point. John makes the point of the, the commandment of love. In a pattern of love then you are fulfilling the law of God. And if you live in a way that is fulfilling the law of God, obeying His Word, living holiness and living Christ-likeness out, that is the path of love. We saw just in chapter 2 last week, verse uh, 4, sorry, verse 3, John said, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. And then he says in verse 5, Whoever keeps His Word... In him truly the love of God is perfected. Holiness is loveliness, is loving behavior. And, and love is how we fulfill the law. In, in, in godliness or holiness, sanctification, Christ-likeness, whatever word you want to use, in a lifestyle where we are obeying the word of God, in that you can find the perfect uh, combination of self-love, Love towards other people and love towards God. Self-love is obviously, and it's Jonathan Edwards who wrote about this extensively. Don't tell me I'm not quoting him, but I'm referencing what he wrote. He said that, that self-love is, is, the, is, is a good virtue. It's something we should all have, the, the love of self, and yet it is that virtue that is most easily turned into sin. Of course, we're supposed to love that we are created in God's image. Therefore, love that about us which reflects Him. We're supposed to seek our own benefit and do ourselves good. We'll read in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And it goes on to say that he's like a tree that flourishes and he avoids judgment. Well, there you go. Holiness or sanctification, living a godly life according to the Word of God, is how you love yourself. It is also how we love God. 
We read just earlier in chapter 2 that uh, John said that if we love God, uh, then we will obey Him. If we obey Him, then that's the love of God in our lives. If we love other people, we are obeying God. But also we can read here in verses 10 through 11, whoever loves his brother... Sorry, I've, I've skipped myself. John 14 verse 15, which is the gospel of John, Jesus writing to his, sorry, speaking to his disciples says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is a sign of us loving God that we don't get to say, well, are you, are you like an obedient, legalistic, Bible obeying sort of Christian or are you more of a lovey-dovey kind of Christian who wears headbands and always carries a guitar around? Which one are you? We don't get to say one or the other we get to say, I love God, therefore I obey His commandments. It is how we love God. But thirdly, and this is John's main point here, to love God's Word and live a holy life is how we love others. Look at verse 10 and 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because that darkness has blinded his eyes. This is language of when he's talking about stumbling, that, that when you're somebody who walks in the light and you love your brothers and, and therefore you avoid causing other people to stumble, that's language for you don't bring sin into the relationship, you don't tempt other people, you're not a, a bad influence on them, or you don't show them examples of breaking the law of God, but if you love, and you are living a lifestyle of love, if you reflect the law of God, then in you, your brothers and sisters around you will not find reason to be tempted. In fact, we're going to stumble across this in our reading of Mark coming up in the mornings fairly soon. Jesus says that if you are a cause of temptation to another Christian brother or sister, it's better for you in the final analysis to go and throw a, throw a millstone and a, a, a huge stone they would use in agriculture, tie it around your neck and jump into the ocean. That's a better thing than living a lifestyle where you're causing Jesus' blood children to walk in darkness. So he says, yeah, those who live in the light, who the light, who love their brothers, they don't cause them to stumble. So again, we see the connection. Your holy life, your law obedience, your word keeping is an act of love to your brothers and sisters. Well, Romans chapter 14, verse 8 through 10, we see Paul picking up very much the same theme and saying, Owe one another nothing except to love each other. For the one who loves, has fulfilled the law. He's of course picking up the thing that Jesus had earlier said, which is that uh, the greatest two commandments are to love God and love your neighbor as yourself because the whole of the law of God and everything the prophets that have spoke from heaven really just pull their source from that. Every command that God's ever given ultimately has as its root and as its base, love God and love your neighbors. Well here Paul says, the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what John is commanding us that we would be those who, as he said earlier, and as we'll say again later, we are committed to be internally, individually holy, committed to the commands of God. Not allowing secret sin to grow in my life, thinking that that won't affect you, as if, all of a common ship, I can just drill a hole in my cabin and you won't be affected. Friends, Jesus gives us the example that it's like, it's like the, the ever-spreading yeast in a bit of dough. Once it's in, it permeates. Your sin is my business. My sin is your business. Where one body, when one limb goes gangrenous, the rest have to act. And they ought to worry. We love one another well when we seek to obey the law because in us there is no cause for other people to stumble. That's, that's what John says. But then, of course, he goes back and we go back to verse 8. We see that this, verse 7 and 8, this commandment that he's making is not an entirely new commandment. Don't start thinking like I know some people who realize that some people with bad understanding of the Bible would think that the Old Testament was all about law and harshness 
and then the new covenant, the New Testament came around and Jesus invented this thing called love. Not true. The commandment for us to love one another has been around since the law was written. It's actually in Leviticus. No one put their hand up and say that's the love book, but it's Leviticus where God says, love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, there are in there commands to love your enemy and, and help them. So part of what John is saying is, when he says in verse 7, I'm not writing you a new commandment, there's two areas of that. He's saying, unlike these false teachers that have come in, swung around, stole a bunch of your mates with some new, creative, novel teaching, I'm not doing that. I'm giving you the same old gospel truth and commandments that I gave you at the beginning, that Jesus gave in his ministry. In fact, all the way back to the beginning of the word of God, this has been the commandment of God. Love one another. And yet he says, verse 8, but it is new. He's a good preacher. He nuances himself. He's, he's playing both sides of the coin. He says, but yet it is new, isn't it? Because no time, never ever in the Old Testament, were you ever told, love one another as I, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, have loved you by giving my life for you. They were never told in the Old Covenant, love one another like this lamb loves us, and then they butcher it. Because the, the Old Testament sacrifices were not a display of love. They were caught against their will, scrapped up, thrown on the altar, bled till they were dry, butchered, burned, and cooked. But the sacrifice of the New Covenant, when Jesus comes in, not unwillingly, but he goes willingly to the cross, carrying his own wooden not tied up, not thrown against his will, he comes and he bleeds and he dies under the wrath of God for every single one of us who would come out of him. That, Jesus says, is the picture of love. Love one another as I have loved you, he says in John 13. We see at least two, two parts of, of, of how Jesus loves that we ought to also love. Of course, the scene itself where Jesus is saying to them, love one another as I have loved you, is the scene where he has knelt down, taken off everybody's filthy, manky, muddy, manure crocs and started to wash their feet and polish their toenails and get out the grime from their cracked heels. That's what Jesus did. Bent down, washed their feet and said, love each other like I've loved you. In other words, there's, there's no amount of lowliness. There's, there's no amount of humility that serving and loving other brothers and sisters costs. That is too low. Jesus calls us all the way down to the bottom, to the lowest of services, to love one another as he has loved us. But secondly, the extent of Jesus' love. Jesus didn't just love us by becoming a human when he was perfectly happy in the infinite glory of his Father's presence and the trillions of angels. He didn't just love us by becoming a human. He didn't just love us by, by being a human who washed feet. He didn't just love us by being a human who washed feet and then even lived so long as to die to so kind of be like us. But Jesus loved us enough to become one of us live in our lives and then go and be butchered under the wrath of God for us. Dying those long hours on the cross where his, his torn flesh, ripped muscles, bare bones were exposed. That is the extent of the love of Jesus. And he says, love each other like that. In the lowest of services, it may be, and to the greatest extent of death, if God calls you to do something. In that way, it's a new command. Because there is a brand new example in Jesus Christ. And then, secondly, we see, look at verse uh, uh, 8. Uh, at the last half of verse, verse 8, he says, This new commandment, which is true in him, that, that's what he means by, we've got this new example, this new picture, this new fulfillment of love in Jesus, in him, and in you. There's a way that this commandment to love one another is even new in the people hearing it compared to the Old Covenant. There's a way that Christians hear the command to love that is different in its power and its effectiveness than in the Old Covenant. Here's why. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Therefore, whoever says 
he is in that light, but hates his brother, is still in the darkness. One of the, the second ways then, that this command to love is new is because it's truly new. You have, you have been by Jesus' bloodshedding atonement and then sending his Holy Spirit. You've been cleansed from your sin and through regeneration, you've been made a new person. Oh, let's not have any more thoughts about your past. If you're a Christian, you, you didn't just grow up in a Christian family, sometime you'd understand the gospel, and here I am, a boring life conversion story. Or, or the other side, if you had some crazy life in sin and you've come back, you didn't just decide to get your life back on track, come back to the church. Let's call it what it is. God resurrected you from his power in heaven by sending the Spirit to pull you out of the spiritual grave and make you an entirely new Creature. You're not just a, the old person living a new lifestyle. You are a new creation. If you can't say that, you're not a Christian. You are, friends, in Jesus, a new creation entirely. And therefore, John is saying, in you, as you hear the, the call to love one another like Jesus, you are people made in the image of Jesus. You're people carrying about in your person the presence of the omnipotent Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune, eternal Godhead. You are hearing it very differently to those scattered, unholy, unfilled, unspiritual Jews at the foot of the mountain that were told, love one another as you love yourself. We hear it with all new power, with all new internalized power, <coughs> and that whole concept of us being regenerated to make new creatures. And the gospel flying through this world and pushing out the darkness, that is caught up in what John says when he says. Because the darkness is passing away. Why do you have new natures that are able to obey the commands of love like no other generation could, like no other epoch or dispensation or age bracket in, in God's word? Why are you able to obey this like no one else could? Because now the darkness is fading away. Now the devil has been bound up and booed out. Now your sins have genuinely been paid for and God has brought into this world his kingdom to start growing. You are in a, a unique, blessed period of redemptive history, friends. That's you tonight. You are in a privileged position. To be in this part of the of world history when God is sending his Holy Spirit and in us and beyond us in the world, the darkness is being pushed away. The true light that is Jesus Christ and his gospel is already shining. You are not enslaved to your sins anymore. You are not allowed to call yourself powerless in the Christian life to obey the law of God and to love your brothers and sisters because there is something true in you now that is unique and powerful. You are free to obey the law of God. You are empowered by Jesus Christ and His Spirit alone. This is a new, new command. Therefore, because of this, this huge reality of salvation and all of the blessings that it entails, he makes this very black and white application. Whoever says, verse 9, whoever says he's in the light, but he hates his brother, simply shows to everybody else that all of the light that we're talking about, all the power of regeneration, all the infilling of the Holy Spirit has not touched that person. Because if they don't love their brother, they don't walk in the world. They don't obey the Lord. They don't have the Spirit of God. If they don't live a life of love, they have not been born again and are still in darkness. So we need to start thinking about ourselves tonight. As we, as we think about how we fit with just those, those first few verses that John has said. How easy it is for us to disdain and disregard and discount and dismiss other Christians. It's so easy to dismiss them and disown them and get embarrassed by them to show the church or those in the church or certain Christians and specific ones that might be here around you tonight. They, you love to be indifferent towards them. You, you neglect them. 
Because you just don't like them, you're running across by them, and, and you don't think they're worthy of the kind of love that you, holy as you are, glorious as you are, worthy as you are, that you should display to them. Well, we should think of that kind of mindset and characteristic no more worthy of honor or respect than the dad that runs out and leaves his family, or the brother that, that robs his mum and then ditches the family and runs off with the girlfriend. Turning on one's family like that is shameful. It's insulting, but it's also very exposing. Friends, if we think that we kind of we kind of get to a point of maturity and theological uh, uh, acuity and learnedness and, and holiness, but we start being able to look down on the other Christians and, and then be sick of them and tired of them and just wish as if they could be like us and, and like the Pharisee in Luke 18, we accidentally start praying prayers like, God, oh, I'm so thankful that in your grace and blessing, I'm just not like that girl. Just not like that girl. I'm so thankful that I am greater than these other ones. Lord, by your grace, alone, of course. Degradation and dismissing and indifference towards those who are in the body of Christ is a putrid thing. Because if we're perfectly honest, there's not many Christians that are impressive in the world's eyes. I don't think we're, a, we're, 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 uh, we're unique to that. There's not many of us here that are going to be very impressive whatsoever to any of your worldly friends. If you desire a group of people that will impress your unsaved friends, who will laugh at your unholy jokes, who will overlook your unholy behavior, who will encourage your inflated self-esteem, you're looking in the wrong place. Church is not that. If you're looking for people who all the while will meet all of your needs, themselves though will never be hypocritical, but perfect in holiness, and they will never sin against you again, you're looking for the wrong motives to love people. I love Hebrews 2, verse 11, which tells us that Jesus, the most holy Christian, if we can use that language. Jesus, the most worthy of praise and honor, the most impressive person, the most glorious in and of himself, he says, verse 11 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, the writer says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers. I know there's some older siblings in the room tonight that are very glad maybe your younger sibling is not sitting with you. Maybe you're the kind of person that will go to a party or a family get-together and you will quickly bifurcate from your younger sibling. You don't want to be seen with them. They're an embarrassment. You don't like them. Maybe it's your toddler. Maybe they're just a younger teenager. They aren't all that mess. It's, it's in all of us to be prone to be embarrassed of those that went on all of that impressment. My friends, if Jesus can look at us, still weak, imperfect, failing though we are, and he can say to the Father, before all of the holy angels, I'm not ashamed of them, then we have no excuse to be ashamed of one another or to despise one another. The reason to love, John is saying, is not because of what you get out of it, is not because of how impressive they are, but because of this, that Jesus has bled for them and unified them to you with an eternal bond in the Spirit. Jesus commands it, so love them. Jesus exemplified it, so follow his command, his example, and love them. And Jesus empowers it, therefore love them. And then we get to verse 12 to 14. This sort of, in your Bible, if you, and I hope you have your Bible open in front of you, that's always the most helpful way to learn. If you don't have one, we, we have one we can give you. But in, in the Bible, you probably have uh, verses 12 to 14 sort of set in a poetic sort of um, uh, style out in front of you, in little prose and in little uh, uh, mini paragraph and stanzas. Because what he goes into really is some kind of poetic, singing, song-styled uh, uh, speech. And here's what I think he's doing. At this point, he's made very high standards for anybody that would call himself a Christian. If you don't walk in the light, you're in the darkness, you're unsaved. If you don't love your brothers and sisters, you're in the darkness, you're unsaved. If you don't abide in the word of God, you're in the darkness, you are unsaved. And like a good pastor, he sort of catches himself after he's been yelling. And he goes, you know what? 
I wouldn't sleep tonight if I thought that my people were thinking that I'm setting this enormous standard in front of them and then telling them, go get it all, God doesn't love you, right? I, I would not sit easy this afternoon if I was to say that and know that they were to be discouraged by the commandments of God. So John's going to say later on in this epistle, love is to fulfill the law of God and his commandments are not a burden. So he sort of takes a stop between telling us to love one another and then afterwards telling us to hate the world, he's going to stop there and put right in the middle the encouragement. The reality that, that he's saying, you are able to do this. There's these two words that you should be familiar with, especially, especially as you start assessing preaching. I want you to be good at assessing and understanding good gospel preaching. These words are indicative and imperative. An imperative is a command. It's a law. It's an exhortation to do something. It's an imperative. You might hear a teacher or a flight attendant say, it is imperative that you listen at this moment. It's, a, it's an important command. An indicative, you see the word in there, like indication, like that. Uh, it's the reason why you do that thing. Now what we see in the New Testament is that God never gives us an imperative, a command, without also giving us an indicative why you should do this, why you can do this, how you can do this. In other words, we'll see in Romans 6, you died with Christ, your sin is dead, indicative, the truth, there's not a command, it's the gospel promise. And then he says, therefore, put your sin together. Now, how torturous it would be if all he wrote to us was, get more holy, put your sin to death. We don't find that in the New Testament. We, we nowhere will read imperatives of commands, of law, that are not backed up and empowered and fueled by gospel promises. And that's what we see here. Verse 12 through 14, you will see no commandments. It's just pure, unmitigated gospel promises that apply to everybody who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, first of all, we see now he's going to talk a lot about children, young men, and fathers. I think there's lots of debate about he's talking about like the actual age groups in the, in the church. I don't think he is. I think he's talking about the, the stages of Christian development. And yet, and they do apply across both genders, and yet, each section applies to all the other sections anyway. It's not as if the thing he says to the old men does not also apply to the, the, the infants in Christ, the new believers. So I'll, I'll just use it quite uh, uh, broadly as we go through. But these are the things that are true of Christians, and therefore there is no excuse for failure in the law that he puts before us. Verse 12, we read this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. There is no greater inspiration, motivation, or spur in holiness in the Christian life than knowing that your sins are forgiven. There's, there's no sense that we're going to be able to run forwards if, in order to try and uh, uh, complete things or finish righteousness or, or do good deeds if we haven't heard the proclamation of Jesus from the cross that it is finished like we saw. Yes, run, labor, work, zealously, serve, do all the law commands, but know that it's not because you're trying to achieve a right standing with God, it's, it's finished. You're already forgiven. The Jews in, in Exodus 12, right, when, when they were getting out of Egypt, ready, they're, they're out of there, they're, they're on their heels, good to go, they were not told, get up and leave and break yourself free of the Egyptians. They were told, the Egyptians have let go of you, God has killed all their first firstborn sons, so the gates are open. Get out. You're released, but you've got to start walking. The work is done, so you're free to leave. And so here is the gospel promise that each of us need to hear. There is a path ahead that is going to be difficult, strenuous, laboursome, hard work before you to fight sin and live holy in love to the people of God. But friends, you're forgiven. You don't need to, to be crippled by fear of tomorrow's sins. 
You don't, you don't need to, to creep around and walk on eggshells wondering if God's that angry father ready to, ready to take you out. He loves you. He's forgiven you for his own name's sake. He hasn't just forgiven you for your name's sake, for your sake, as if you could be sitting there one day and sort of start doing some maths. Now, I know he forgave me for my sake, because he loves me, but I've given him plenty of reasons not to love me. And maybe one day it'll rack up so much that he'll say it's no longer good to keep this person saved. I withdraw my salvation. I withdraw my fear. You can think that way if you have bad theology, but, but what John tells us is to realize that God has married, he has woven together his own glory, which he desires above everything, and your salvation. So that now that the covenant promises to Jesus have been ratified in the resurrection, God is not able to unforgive someone he has forgiven. He is not able to remove from Christ those that he has put into Christ. Because to do that, he would undo the very process he is bringing about to give himself glory. It's for his name's sake that you're forgiven. So he's actually got a vested interest in this to make sure you get to the end still forgiven. He will not let you go. It is for his own name's sake that he has redeemed you. What a great promise to every child of God to hear that. But of course, then he keeps going. But he moves on from this knowledge that your, your sins are forgiven, not a hope, not a whim, not a cross fingers, an absolute certain assurance. My sins are forgiven. He moves on from that to say, verse 13, and again in 13, and then he repeats himself third time in uh, verse 14. He says this, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Then he says there at the end of verse 13, I write to you children because you know the father. Verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. When he says him who is from the beginning here, he means what he meant back in chapter 1, Jesus. God the Son made manifest in Jesus Christ of Nazareth to show us God the Father. That's Jesus who is from the beginning. The Son who has always existed is not a created God, is not an angel that came down to us, but Jesus, God in flesh. You know him. And of course then he says in verse 14, and you know the Father. This, of course, the knowledge of Jesus and the knowledge of the Father, is that summarizes, that, that encapsulates the whole of the gospel lesson. He said back in chapter 1, verse 3, we're writing to you that you may share in our fellowship, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. If we understood what was meant, what was fully implied in the reality that Christians are in a union with the eternal Godhead, in both Father and Son, and they're kept in that relationship by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we would spend all our days stunned. Thank God every now and then for a little bit of ignorance to not comprehend everything in the gospel. Your faces would melt, your head would explode. You'd be reduced to an inactive pile of ash. And yet let's marvel at our lack of being able to marvel at the reality. The gospel is that you've come into a relationship with Jesus, the Son of God eternal, and His Father, who is from the beginning. You know Him. You know Him, and of course, in the background of this would be the reality, and the false teachers don't know Him. They boast about their power. They, they tell you all about their experiences. They're lying. They go to bed not knowing God. You know Him, Christian. It's through Jesus Christ atonement. You have been made right with God, and you are the one who knows Him. John 17, verse 3. In the Gospel, Jesus prayed and said, This is eternal life, that they, His disciples, that they know you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. The fact that we are in a knowledge, a relationship with the Father, and the Son, by the Holy Spirit. That is the encapsulation of the Gospel. And you'll see, it's not just that you know Him as some nameless 
deity, he's not just some distant divinity, he's not some angry dad, he's a father who loves you. How many people in our generation just don't even know the name of their dad? Too many? How many people know their dad, but they're glad he's not around, or, or they know he's around, but they do all they can to avoid him? Why? Because dads in our world just make a, make a terrible example of what fatherhood is supposed to be. Supposed to be unconditional love, protection, training, discipleship, giving the best that they have and pouring it out in their life for you. That's the God you know. Your father. Not your, not your mean, distant family member. Your intimate, loving father. That's what Christians need to know. If you're going to start trying to walk the life of law and holiness and love, you will not get far at all if you think God is chasing you with a stick or you think that the law you're trying to obey is written by some vindictive, mean God. My friends, you know him who has architected this path. You know him who has planned every step of your life. You can trust him. You can lean into his work. He's a loving, eternal God. And then he says to the young men. He addresses this to the young men. That is the, the fighting, able-bodied, spirit-filled Christians, both men and women, all who are in their prime. And of course, this, this can apply to all of us. He, he specifically puts it towards the, the young in spirit, though. He says, you have overcome the devil. Then again, he says, you, have, you are strong. Then in, uh, uh, at the end of verse 14, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I put all of these together because they're evidently in John's mindset. They are obviously one thing. He's saying to those Christians, heavy, their arms weighing heavy in the fight, their, their legs are sore, their, their back is giving in. The sweat is running into their eyes. The blood is running from the calluses and the blisters in their hand. He's saying to those Christians who are fighting against the temptation of the world, who are fighting against the patterns of the world, he's saying to them, you are no longer beneath the power or within the grip of Satan. You have overcome the evil one. We use the example before of the Exodus. Let's use an example of David going and, and smashing Goliath in the head and cutting off his head with his own sword. That's always left out of Sunday school lessons, but not here, I don't think. Uh, I teach my son that story. He, he loves the story of killing the giant. Uh, I gave him a little toy one, drew, drew a balloon, drew a face on it, and he held it up, uh, saying this is Goliath's head. We love biblical bloodshed in the Ford household. But let's think of that. As David ran forward as the victor and the champion of the Israel, uh, Israelite nation and their, their military, he went forward as the strong one in the power of God, killed Goliath, then turned back around to the Israelite army and said, hey guys, weak, failing, trembling, scared of this giant whose head is being held up in front of you, get running, they're defeated, they can't stop you now, go get them and so they ran forward. And this is what John is saying to those Christians who would identify as, as the young men, the, the young women, in the, in the prime of their spiritual life. John wants to say, as you advance in the Christian life, don't forget to look at your footprints. They'll always have the life blood in them. Remember, every step you take, every time you run, every, every time you push forward, you're pushing forward because the evil one, the champion who held you in chains, is dead, destroyed, and killed. Though this dragon, the devil, is still flailing, is still wounding, is still planning and scheming, he is defeated. And if you're in Christ Jesus, by simple faith, having never put a sin to death yet, having never taken a step in obedience, you got saved yesterday, you have no clue what it is to live like Jesus, yet you, God will say, you have victory over the evil one. And you are strong. Young men need to hear anything. Young women need to hear anything. It is who they are. The whole of the Christian life, every commandment in the New Testament is basically just the apostles saying, be who you are. You are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. If, if 
young men on the battlefield, if we can go back to even the First and Second World War and think of those 17, 16, 18 year olds, some of them lying about their age just to get out there and fight. They needed, they needed energy in their bones, they needed boldness, and what were they told? That you are strong, go, fight! And this is what John says to those Christians. You are strong. In another sense, you can say, you're weak, I know. You're not strong. One little image pops up, you start lusting. One person walks in with nicer clothes than you, you start coveting. One opportunity comes up, you'll start saying, yeah, I'll go to that instead of church. We all know how, how prone we are to weakness, but the you here is not the you. He's not saying you're strong. He's saying that because Jesus is in you, you are strong. The you is not you. The you is Jesus Christ who lives in you. As Paul said, it's no longer I who live. It's Jesus Christ who lives in me. And with Jesus in you, nothing is more powerful than you. That as we begin to live a life that is according to the law, that is holy, that is obeying the word of God, there is no opposition to that lifestyle that can overcome those filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. The very source of spiritual power in the Christian life while we have to go externally to the Word, while we have to read and do devotions and, and understand and read other books to help us understand and listen to the Word preached, the reason the Bible has power in our lives is because it has some kind of spiritual source, a, a receptor in you, if you want, that is able to receive the Word of God for power and sustenance and Christian living. This Word is external, but it is internalized by the Holy Spirit. In you, young men, how dare you cower on the front lines? You have overcome the evil one. He's saying here, you have no excuse not to live the Christian life with victory. You have every single thing you need in Jesus Christ to live a godly life. You have everything necessary to make ground in holiness. You are well equipped. Now stop sitting in the trenches and licking your wounds and making excuses and crying and, and feeling sorry for self. Believe the gospel, John says. Get up and run. There is ground to take in holiness. No one of us. We have Jesus. And by him, the Holy Spirit, no one of us is allowed to make the excuse. We're powerless. Helpless. More addicted than we are being filled by the Spirit. Not once. We have everything we need. And therefore, from that imperative, from, from sorry, sorry, from that indicative, from that promise, from that reality achieved for us, he moves to this entirely difficult, in fact, humanly impossible command in verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I know you're, you're, you're theologians, you're going to start putting up your hand and saying, that's, that's actually an inconsistency there, because the same writer John wrote back in his gospel, John chapter 3, verse 16, pretty, pretty uh, famous verse, you don't get any points for memorizing this one uh, these days. I think it's good, but do more. John 3, 16, we're actually told that God loved this world. So, there you go. I should not be blamed for loving this world also. But in those two texts, John is meaning a different love and a different sense of the word world. Uh, there's lots of different ways that John uses the, the word world, or he uses different Greek words that really just come out as the same word world. Sometimes by world he just means the people in the world. Sometimes by world he just means everyone in an area. Like the whole world went out to see John the Baptist. Well, not the indigenous Australians, okay? Just the area of India. Not everyone, but the whole world. And so this, this language can be used in different ways. And in this sense, we use the word cosmos, which is different to the word, or opposite, antithetical to the word chaos. It's a word which means order, a system, an architected uh, structure. What we should realize is that there is an architected structure, a system, an, an order in this world that is set up against God and his system, against the church. We could call it the kingdom of darkness, as 
Colossians does. We can call it the, the forces of evil, as Ephesians does. But whatever we do, we need to realize that there is a structure, a system set up against God and all that is from God. So what John is commanding us is, it's not like God loved the people in the world so as to sacrifice, like he mentioned John 3.16. He means, do not affectionately desire. Do not flirt with it. Do not, do, not, do not get your affections wrapped up with the system that is an enemy of God. And he gives us a few reasons why. He tells us, first of all, because the things that you love build an appetite for or against God. Look at verse 16. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, your version might say the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The things that you look at, the things that you let yourself build an attraction towards, an affection for, whether you like it or not, starts changing how you feel and relate to God. I forget who it was, but I remember one pastor saying that your soul will shrink wrap whatever it is that you desire most. The thing you watch repetitively, the the lifestyle that you look at and aim for, the, the people that you hang around and want to become like, that, that thing which you desire and you have affections for, your soul is going to start shrink-wrapping that and taking on its shape. If the world is something you love, maybe it's things on a screen, maybe it's things that you can wear, maybe it's things that you can own and throw on your house and impress everybody, maybe it's influence and, and power or, or some kind of ability to bully and degrade other people, whatever it is that's from the world and your heart. Though you want to say you love God, though you want to feel an affection for God, you want to be able to wake up and, and walk in the ways of God, you can't. Because you can't click and change your appetite. An appetite, a palate, is forged over years. So remember, the, the, maybe you're too young, maybe you the kids aren't at the same gym, you have the 18 year old son, he turns 18, he's going to have his first meal with dad, and he takes a drink, and his eyes twist, and he almost gags and throws up, and he just says, because of, you know, this is what guys drink, and that's so good. And dad will always say, you know, when they had son's 18th birthday, that's right, you, you've got to develop your palate for it. Or put in any more church appropriate food you want. No, what we know is that you don't just get to choose. Let me give your kid, your mum's told this. Just enjoy it. I made it for you. I know, that's really the problem. It's not that great. You don't get to decide what your <coughs> senses enjoy. You need to realize that you, don't, you will not get to be able to turn, maybe it's 18, maybe you've got an age or a stage or a development in your life. Once I'm married, I'll stop lusting over other people. Once I'm, I'm 20, I'll be a mature man. Once I've got kids, I'll be masculine man. Once I'm married, I'll, I'll have the sort of spirit that God desires me to have as a wife. Once I'm moved out, then I'll be mature and independent and read my Bible more. No friends, you never ever get to decide what you desire. It's developed and trained over the years. John is warning. Do not flirt with that which is against God, or you will find yourself in a day of temptation, a day of decision, and you won't be able to fight it. You've desired something so long, it becomes your second nature. So do not desire the world, do not love the world, because it is enticing. We can think of Eve. Go back with me to Genesis 3 in your minds as Eve was being tempted by the devil to take the fruit that God had commanded her not to take. There's nothing wrong with the fruit. There's nothing sinful. It was a good creation of God, but she was barred from it, at least for a time. And within that time, the devil tempted her to eat. It says that she stared at that tree. That fruit, which now, while it was a good creation of God, it had become a symbol of the world. The, the system against God, a tool in the hand of the devil. And she looked at it. She stared at it. 
She flirted with the idea of being able to reach out and take a bite. Not so much because of, of the taste only, but because all that it represented is power behind it. It says here in 1 John chapter 2, I think he's making an intentional throwback to Genesis 3, where he says, first of all, the world has the desires of the flesh. Genesis 3 says that when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, it was going to satisfy her desires with him. She wanted it. She desired it. And then it says, John says, and the desires of the eyes. And Genesis 3 goes on to say, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. It sparked her covetousness. Now she wanted what she couldn't have and didn't have. John goes on to say, well, the pride of life, or the pride of possessions. And Genesis 3 says, she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She desired some kind of prideful self-sufficiency that she wouldn't have to rely on the words of God anymore. She could function on her own wisdom and own desires. And right there we see all three. The temptations from within, though you and I need no help from an external devil to put desires within us. Our flesh is turned inward and still corrupted, though we're saved. The desires of the flesh want satisfaction in the world. Well, the outside world puts things into us that we want. The, the external enemy of, of all these temptations that are up on billboards in other people's lives, right there in front of us on screens. The external temptation. Or the desire to have and be self-sufficient in pride and in arrogance. We have a worldly enemy within our flesh. We have worldly enemies without us that tempt us. We have a tendency inside to turn the good gifts of God into an act of self-worship. The only cause, the only response to this, the only thing that is an appropriate and necessary suitable response to that threefold enemy, the flesh, the world, and the devil, is constant self-watchfulness and reminding and reading of the Word of God, especially those gospel promises. We don't do that. We won't be putting sin to death. The world will be loved by us and we will perish with it. Last two things before we close. Look at verse 16. At the end of verse 16, he says, All those things is not from the Father, but is from the world. He's saying that the things you love tell me where you're from. I bet if we put a small sport right here in front of us or went out to a, some kind of multicultural markets, you could tell where people are from, or maybe where the, the person who cooks in their house is from, by what sort of foods they're going to tend towards, right? The, the some, some ways, and they're just not going to get anything more salt, any spicy than salt on chips. They can't handle that. Uh, and other people are just going to go down and, and get the hottest chicken there is and pile of Tabasco on it and, and just want something spicier. And you can notice from that, they're coming from different places or, or cultures. There's, they're coming from different places and they have their desire. They love, they enjoy different things. They do this in maybe it's sports, maybe it's activities, song choices, whatever. Each, each location where you're from forges into the desires of something. And John says, if you're somebody that desires the world, no matter what you say, I can tell you're not from God. You're not from God. He doesn't give his children those desires. No one in my household is going to be going down and enjoying that thing that I've never trained them and taught them to love. I'm saying those who love brothers and sisters, those are the ones who know God. They're coming from God. The desires of the world are coming from an evil, dark source. And thirdly, we see in verse 17 here. The brothers and sisters of the church are the most deserving things in this world of your love outside of the triune God. Verse 17. The world is passing away along with all of its desires. It's in the process of decay and destruction as Jesus, and by his gospel, through the light, spreads. But there is an even more final sense that the world in the future will pass away. Everything sinful about it will decay and be destroyed with the lake 
of fire. It's passing away. But those ones who do the will of God, or whoever does the will of God, those people who act out the will of God in their lives, they abide in forever. You know, you've got two groups in front of you. The, the world and all those impressive, sensual, sexual, tempting things that they do are right out in front of you. And we all are barraged by those temptations all week. And then you've got Christians who don't know that you don't wear thongs with socks and don't know that that song is lame and that the way that way to dress is not that cool or impressive and, and you don't know how to make me good and feel good and, and all of that, the, the Christians who just don't thrive in the world. Look at those two people, right? The two groups in front of us. And of course, every bit of sin still in us wants to love the world and love the people from the world and the systems and the behaviors of the world. It's really not all that much about church, as long as it's a pure church that will attract us simple inside of flesh. Like John is saying, one of those groups is going to decay and be destroyed, and one of those groups is going to live forever. And it's the Christians. You want to love those things which will last forever. And the Christians who are doing the will of God, get yourself among them. Flourish and, and cultivate and train yourself over years and months and through acts of service. You don't always serve because you love. A lot of the time you serve to train yourself to love. That's at least my confession. You need to do that in service, in giving, in sacrifices, in encouragement, in time, in time around the Word of God. You do these things in order to cultivate in you a love for your brothers and sisters. Because if you don't have that love for them, you don't have a love for God. And lastly, I just want to point out that Jesus says that Christians, the ones sitting around you, not your, your best mates, not necessarily your brothers and sisters of the flesh, but those Christians around you, whether you like it or not, that's Jesus' reward for you. Mark 10, verse 30, Jesus says that nobody, nobody who has left their house or their brothers or sisters or their mothers or fathers or their children's or lands for my sake in the gospel. Just picture that. Somebody has been cast out by their family. They've lost their inheritance. They no longer have 20 acres out in the Cunningham uh, Highway area. They don't have the luxurious mansion. They've been cut off from their family. They're hated and poor now because they came to Jesus. And Jesus says, no one will do that. What's going to be the reward? What do we get if we do that? And Jesus says, no one does that without receiving in this lifetime. Mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, along with persecutions. The Christians around you, whether you like it or not, are the thing that Jesus gives you to unwrap on Christmas Day. Don't be unfaithful. They're the reward that if you were realizing that, if you would just open up your life and, and no Christian who has made sacrifices or traveling or, or, or scheduled their life differently in order to sow more, more investively into a local church of mature Christians, no Christian has ever done that and come to regret it. They hear this and say, a hundred times over, I'll sell my goods, I'll be cast out by my family, and I'll lose my inheritance. Give me the people of God in whom is all my delight. They are the sweetest, though mingled with sin. They are the sweetest thing this side of heaven that God has given to this world. Do you have that kind of love? Enter in. And if you're somebody who is still not a Christian, you don't know that you're saved. Tonight, make sure, come and talk to me or Vic or someone who brought you. Ask of them, what must I do to have my sins forgiven? Because it really is as simple as look at the cross of Jesus who died. Consider the resurrection from the dead up to the throne of God and know that Jesus has done it all to save you. And if you believe, you are forgiven. You're justified freely. You're in his family, his kingdom, and his home. Love, brothers. Believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word which comes to us from the pen of the Apostle John. We thank you for where it finds us because some of us are deep in sin. We've walked off your path and are caught in the, in the clay and the mud and has bogged us down. And Lord, we need our brothers and sisters to pull us out. 
We need your spirit to empower us and encourage us in the gospel to bring us back to the right way. Lord, we are Christians who are, who are laboring on when we are weary, or we are tired, or we are fearful, and we need your gospel to empower and encourage us that you have overcome, that you have forgiven us, and that we know you from the Lord. Lord, there are some who are not saved, and even tonight they are either trying to suppress the reality of their own condemnation, or trying to escape the thoughts of hell and God's judgment, or, or trying to push it out of their minds. God, please take those who live in sinful lifestyles, however much they've justified it or excused it, bring them to Jesus to cleanse them and forgive them, Lord. Give them hearts that will believe by faith in the unbelievably good news of the gospel. May your spirit work in each and every single one of us to make us strong, to make us bold, to make us gospel-believing Christians. And it's in the name of your God, uh, God, man, Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.